you're listening to Tiger Country, because sometimes you want a better view than the one you can get from being behind the knife. Sometimes you want your conversations to be more audible than the bleeding. Join Milos Bahavitz, Joan Bowes, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk to our guests about trauma surgery, critical care, powerboating, cats, mandolin, croissants, cats, TV shows, cats, and steak. That record button. My um, my center would love to put um, your. Well, welcome back, everybody, uh, to the latest episode of Tiger Country. As always, we have Dr. Joe DeBose joining us again after taking all of vascular and trauma call uh, UT Austin uh, last time when he wasn't able to join us. And of course, Dr. Kundi is here with us from Shock Trauma. And this week we are joined by uh, Dr. Greg Billman. Hello, sir. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the chance to join today. Let's let's jump right in here. Um, you know, one of the being being the youngest member of of our little group here, I, I can still remember it wasn't that long ago when I was in training, and, and one of the very first things that I learned was you eat when you can, you sleep when you can, and under no circumstances do you futz around with the pancreas. It, it's probably one of the most challenging organs to deal with. And the management of pancreatitis has changed a lot, especially, you know, while I was training um, things that I was taught to do or things that were current in the literature rapidly became not current in the literature. And one of those things is uh, lots of different scoring systems, uh, even in different settings uh, that are intended to help us put these patients into risk categories and guide subsequent management from a I'm sick enough to be in the hospital perspective. Which of these is the most useful in your opinion? And how do you categorize and triage the hospital patients with pancreatitis? I uh, thought, think that's a great question, Milos. And I don't have a good answer. You know, the, the question that I asked the medical students for years in the OR is uh, what, what are Ranson's criteria? Um, and that was described by Dr. Ranson in 1969 to help decide who is going to get admitted to the ICU in um, one of the hospitals in New York. Um, the Probably the most useful and easy to remember score uh, for me is something published about 10 years ago called the BISAP, B-I-S-A-P score. It uses elevated BUN impaired mental status, SERS criteria, age greater than 60 years, and pleural effusion to help uh, prioritize the patients that are uh, sicker. And if you have all five of those things, you have about a 25% risk of mortality. Typically, if you have three of those five, I am thinking about putting those patients in the ICU. I have to say that with COVID the last three years, We've gotten very comfortable in managing patients who should be in the ICU, out of the ICU. So you have to look at each of these. The most important thing in any patient is what you think as a clinician about how this patient looks. Uh, there's a lot of things you don't measure uh, or that you look at physiologically that have to drive your decision-making process. It's really interesting that that you bring up COVID. It feels like there are lots of things that were hard and fast rules before COVID came along and not having those resources and not having beds available. We started to get very, very flexible about what all of a sudden was appropriate not to have in the ICU. Here in Tiger Country, we're really interested in sort of the extremes. We, we, we want to do the big fun stuff, talk about the, the really sick patients. So let's put the mild folks to one side. First 24, 48 hours, these folks that are ending up in the ICU, can you briefly, as, as briefly as that's possible, uh, talk us a little bit through how you're managing these patients in the first few days? Uh, absolutely. It's uh, nothing much has changed about the management of sick ICU patients and pancreatitis patients who have bad pancreatitis 
fit under that. It's basically supportive care. Uh, and supportive care includes appropriate resuscitation with IV fluids. There are decent studies now uh, published a number over a decade that show that lactated ringers is superior to normal saline for resuscitation of patients with pancreatitis. I don't have to say that to surgeons, but I'm going to say it one more time. Lactate and ringers is superior to normal saline for resuscitation of patients with pancreatitis. Um, I give fluids until they piss. And so all these people need a Foley catheter um, and you dump fluids into them until they're making urine. Um, I tend to start enteral tube feeds the day after admission to the ICU when I don't have to have them on vasopressors. I may delay one more day for enteral tube feeds um, if they're on higher dose vasopressors. Most of the time that's not necessary. Um, and, uh, and I like, this is purely Beelman's choice, not literature supported. I like putting the nasojejunal tube in rather than an NG tube. The Europeans in particular have been very successful, at least in the literature, at feeding people in the stomach. I am very uncomfortable with that. Uh, and then everything else is good ICU care. Um, uh, innovate them and ventilate them. Uh, look for and think about um, intra-abdominal uh, hypertension, or compartment syndrome, if that should develop. Sounds good. Billman's Choice, it sounds like a movie, doesn't it? That it should be. <laughs> I was, was going to ask the question about the feeding thing, because, you know, it, for a while it was like, it has to be post-pyloric, and then, oh, you can feed them the duodenum, then you can feed them the stomach. There's different schools of thought, but it's great. You have a lot of experience, so it's good to hear kind of your perspective on it. Let me pick your brain. A lot of surgeons, we meet these first patient, these patients first. They're in the MICU with other things, and we get pinged when there's some something around the pancreas. It's not even so much the pancreas itself. And I think we get into some of these debates sometimes about what, how should we even be talking about this peripancreatic fluid collection? When does it become a pseudocyst? When is it walled off necrosis? When is it matured walled off necrosis? How do you help 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 me? Because I don't see enough of these doing vascular and trauma. Uh, to know the, the literature and the vernacular, the proper vernacular in 2022, as well as you do. How should I be talking about these and describing them? And how does that influence triage? I break down peripancreatic fluid collections in uh, two different systems of categorization. One is, is it in an interstitial edematous pancreatitis or is it an acute necrosis of the pancreas? Uh, what happens with necrosis of the pancreas is you've killed the pancreas usually because of uh, blood flow problems to the mid portion or the neck of the pancreas because the pancreas gets blood supply from the head of the pancreas through the vessels there and through the splenic artery. And then the, the watershed area is typically the neck of the pancreas, which dies if you get really horrible pancreatitis and you have this necrotic um, quote, fluid collection. It's not really fluid. It's dead pancreas, dead peripancreatic flat, uh, fat, and then a little bit of interstitial fluid that leaks into there. Uh, that's distinguished again from interstitial pancreatitis, you know, the edematous pancreas that you see on CT. So that's one way to break this up. The other way is timing. Early collections are typically reactions to the injury to the pancreas, the late collections start to wall off. And the interstitial pancreatitis with peripancreatic fluid, that turns into a, peri, uh, to a pancreatic pseudocyst now in the new categorization over three to four weeks. Uh, the necrotizing pancreatitis turns into walled off necrosis. And that's the way um, people are breaking these uh, fluid collections down at this point. So if it's a peripancreatic fluid collection early, I leave it alone. If it's late, um, maybe I'll drain it. And I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. Same thing for necrotizing pancreatitis. Early on, most of the time with necrotizing pancreatitis, we're watching that unless they have something else going on that is driving us to intervene. 
Late is when we start thinking about how to best deal with that walled off pancreatic necrosis. Sounds great. I think you actually got to the second part of my question very effectively too. So I'm going to turn the ball over to Dr. Kundi. All right. Uh, Dr. Billman, as just like uh, Dr. DeBose said, it has been a very long time since I took anything resembling acute care uh, surgical call. And the last time that I operated for pancreatitis was as a chief resident. And it was an enormous necrosectomy. The patient was back and forth to the OR over the course of six or seven days. We left enormous strains, and eventually uh, the outcome was exactly what you would expect it would be. Um, since then, obviously, there's been a massive uh, change in both the categorization and the treatment algorithm of this. So is there a role for open necrosectomy or BARDS, or when do you do it? When do you avoid it? So I'm gonna digress for a second and say that I started out as a pancreatic surgeon, as an acute care surgeon, because these people would come into the ICU and would be dying. And there was a guy named Ed Bradley early in the 1990s who described a, basically a life-saving intervention for these patients that would die before. And that was what you were just talking about, the open necrosectomy, back and forth to the operating room until the pancreas started to um, uh, granulate and you could close them safely over drains. Prior to Ed Bradley, mortality rate for infected pancreatic necrosis was 100%. Nobody left the hospital. With Ed's work, uh, and that, that was the 90s for most of us, uh, the survival rate went to 80, 85%. So a huge step forward with all the complications of a big open operation, enterocutaneous fistulas, bleeding, um, uh, other fluid collections that would develop later, long-term hernias that you'd have to deal with. So my practice in the 2000s was dealing with all these people that I operated on in the 90s. Um, there is a much smaller role for open necrosectomies now than there was 15 or 20 years ago, thanks to the new techniques available to us, including endoscopic and percutaneous drainage. And uh, I think we're gonna get into that hopefully a little bit later. Um, I typically don't do surgical interventions anymore. There are, there's one landmark study from now 15 years ago done by the Dutch pancreatitis uh, working group published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they compared to open versus minimally invasive approach with VARD. And they showed almost the same uh, risk of death either way. So the death didn't matter much. But what, what was obvious was there was a much higher risk of complications with the open approach. So I use it basically when other less invasive approaches don't work. Thank you for that setup. <laughs> More than welcome. So, of these of these minimally invasive uh, methods, how do you how do you choose which one? When do you choose VARDS? When do you try for something endoscopic? And and when when do you decide that it's time to do them? Okay. So I'm going to exclude the patient that's dying in front of you, that's within three or four days of presentation, and we will all still see those patients. Um, and they are a special uh, situation. And then we're going to talk about the people who get appropriate resuscitation, who turn the corner, who are making urine, who are getting better physiologically. I don't intervene on any of those patients early on if I can avoid it, uh, because both for the pancreatic pseudocysts and the uh, pancreatic necrosis that turns into walled off necrosis, there are 50 or 60 papers that show that they those patients do better if you wait three weeks or so before you intervene. And what I think is happening in that, and this is again, Bielman's feeling about it, what's happening is you're forming attachments between organs and that pancreatic necrosis that you can then safely use to drain the pancreatic necrosis internally or externally through drains or through a VARD. 
An important concept here, guys, is the fact that we are not alone in doing this work. And we have a weekly pancreas club, we call it, where we look at these patients together and me and my GI doctor and my and my um, interventional radiologist all look at this together and say, what's the best way to drain this? What do we do for this patient this week? Um, is it percutaneous drain? Is it a VARD? Is it endoscopic drainage with some of the new tools that they have? Um, and most of our patients get endoscopically drained with a smaller subset percutaneously drained and a small subset uh, getting VARD. And then the really painful part is what about that one in 50 patients that got endoscopic drainage, got percutaneous drainage, got VARD, and now they're still lingering in the ICU. And I don't have an answer for that one in 50 patients. I do know that the 49 and 50 typically get better with that multidisciplinary care. I gotta stress one more time, it's not just a surgical disease anymore. Put away your pride and say, how do I work with my other colleagues? Because there's plenty of work for all of us to do here. Amen. Kind of just, just retreating and, and jumping on something that uh, Dr. DeBose said. O you know, often we'll get involved when MICU consults us. And, and one of the most common calls that I will get is, hey, we've, we've got some fluid here around the pancreas. In the pancreas, we're not really sure. Don't worry. We've called IR. We're going to stick a needle in it. We're going to get a little sample for you so that we know what we're working with. What should my reaction be? I mean, I know what my reaction is, but I'd rather get the expert opinion. My reaction is don't let them stick a needle in the flu. <laughs> um, I, uh, so, and I skipped one of the important aspects of early management and that's what do you do with antibiotic management? And this has cycled up, down, and up again. Um, there is really, uh, in the latest randomized multicenter trials, no evidence that early antibiotics in either uh, acute pancreatitis with edematous pancreatitis or walled-off necrosis, that those patients benefit from antibiotic therapy. Um, there's a lot of good research going on. And there's actually a recent publication in Lancet where they looked at C-reactive protein to help decide when patients need antibiotics and calcitonin. Uh, I think uh, that's probably the future right now for me. I don't use antibiotics. If you have walled off necrosis and they're worried that there's an infection there, I get my gastroenterologist involved and I have them do an endoscopic drainage if it's appropriate. If it's in a location like one flank or the other and they're not gonna be able to get to it, that's when I like IR to do a percutaneous uh, sampling. And I wouldn't just sample it, I would put in a drain. Um, and I typically push back really hard if they're trying to do a sample within the first couple of days or a week or two after their pancreatitis. And I think I kind of hit on what you were asking me, Milos. Yeah, I know that that's perfect. I'm, I'm gonna make sure from now on, we we, we, we start referring to that as a uh, Bielman's choice. Uh, no, no sampling, only draining. Well, we've heard about Bielman's choice and Bielman's feelings today. There's a lot of uh, ep new eponyms introduced into our surgical vernacular. Um, so what about the great, I'm just gonna jump into the script a little bit. Uh, the um, the, you know, the timing wise, right? Right. Milos gets called, please don't put a needle into it. But then you're saying at some point you, you, we do put a drain into it. How do we make that, that delineation? When is the timing piece? Is there anything radiographically? Is there anything about the patient that tells us, okay, now's the time? Um, I, I think it's a combination of the multidisciplinary discussions week by week and these patients in the ICU um, we get involved with the GI doctors and the ICU doctors in the first uh, week or so. Um, and we're looking at these people every week. And I hate to admit, we do a lot of serial CT scans. Uh, and we're looking for that peel to develop around the walled off necrosis 
we're looking for its relationship with the stomach, with the duodenum, or down the flanks. Uh, and then usually two to three weeks out, um, we're looking at the physiology of the patient saying, okay, is it time to drain them? The big ones are almost all gonna get drained. The small ones, you know, I'll sit on a three or four centimeter fluid collection forever unless the patient is having symptoms of one sort or another. Yeah, and, and I think, it, you know, we really appreciate that clarification. And I think it's, you know, most of our listeners will fall into, like you said, there's going to be one patient in 50 that may not fall into that category where we can get them, you know, two, three weeks out as, you know, as far out as we can before we start attacking these things there. You, you get the occasional sick patient where your hand is forced and you try and figure out some sort of endoscopic or um, drain uh, IR way of, of draining one of these things. If I may, you know, here at Tiger Country, and the gentlemen don't know that I call them this, but we have the, the gurus of the guide wire. So we have a, a penchant for vascular complications and all things vascular. Um, so one of the things that, um, you know, everybody that does ACS and, and worries about the pancreas knows that is a particularly uh, life-threatening problem and is a rapidly life-threatening problem and, and something that I have seen a handful of times uh, over my career is the, the pseudoaneurysm. Mm -hmm. is, um, there, is there anything, when, when, when I put that thought into your head, is there any advice that you can give us that points to the development of a pseudoaneurysm early and how, you know, even if it doesn't, how are these patients going to present? What should we be looking out for? Um, I, I think the people that are likely to develop pseudoaneurysms are those that have the most pancreatic necrosis and those that have de developed the dreaded complication of uh, infected pancreatic necrosis. Uh, when we have seen it is, is uh, you know, a week or two into the process uh, and they start um, dropping their hemoglobin and, and then that's the hint to do the CT scan um, and uh, look for the pseudoaneurysm. The other times we've gotten this one coming to us is uh, after the GI docs have done the uh, cyst gastrostomy and started the debridement process. And then we start sealing a little, seeing a little heralding bleed through the uh, stomach from this. And then it's, I hate to say this, it's time to call the, the gurus of the guide wire. Is that what you said? Because that is the number one uh, approach to dealing with the splenic artery pseudoaneurysms or some of the pseudoaneurysms, the smaller ones you'll see in the head of the pancreas. And then once a year, I operate on these people because all hell breaks loose and, um, and we're not in a situation for one reason or another to get the guru or the guide wire. But, but I'll tell you, interventional, um, inter interventional embolization of these has been uh, a wonderful thing. Yeah, and you know, and we can do that as a combined. We've done a lot of Rishi and I in Maryland. I do it here in Austin. It's all radio based these days, yeah. so yeah. it's pretty simple to do. I think the scarier ones. What's scarier for you when you get those the acute bleeds? I'm talking about the debridement bleeds. When the GI doc is doing it, it's always scarier to me when I've seen it because they can't avard. You can pack, right. right? You pull your scope out, you start packing breaks, and then I, you buy some time for the interventionalist to come along, and sometimes it stops it. But boy, those GI ones, there's what I mean, what what do they have as an option down there if it really starts bleeding? And and that's what and they have a number of of uh, things that they can use to that, you know, we've used for local therapy, but they don't have a good way to put pressure on the bleeding. Yeah. You know, I've seen one of my GI doctors put a balloon down the endoscope and inflate it. Um, but that's when I've had to operate Joe in the last year is somebody that burst loose as as the um uh the pack as the as they were pulling out this dead sequestrum uh, yeah. and we could not stabilize them fast enough to get them to 
interventional um, approach. And we just opened them up. And honestly, what I ended up doing was packing them, putting my finger on there. Then our IR person came in and, and embolized the splenic artery pseudoaneurysm. Would there be any role? Let's say they go in with the scope and they see it's annoying bleeding. They can't stop, but the patient's holding their own, right? You're able to keep up with resuscitation, and, but they've already got a drain in that flank. Um, would you ever go through that VARD or is this just, nope, don't worry about it. Don't get clever. Just go straight through the middle on those bleeds. Like, you know, so if one of our listeners gets called in the middle of the night for this, or hopefully they're not doing these, these endoscopic things in the middle of the night, but Somebody GI docs got a scope down. They've been debriding this patient. They don't have as integrated a service as you have at Minnesota, where everybody knows what the other one's doing. And suddenly they encounter this bleeding and somebody with the drain. Would you say, okay, we're, we're semi-controlled here. Let me get to the VARD so I can at least pack through that incision. Or is it just, that's too clever? Um, I'm, I'm not going to say it's too clever. I think that I like this disease because it requires creativity. Um, so if you can think of a good way to get to the bleeding through the retroperitoneum, uh, good on you, man. Um, I I really rely on our interventional radiologists. You know, if I had surgeons like you, Joe, that that like to stick guide wires into unusual places, I would love you. Uh, this is one of those situations where having a team approach really makes a difference for these patients. And um, so do what works. Without stirring the pot too much. Yeah, exactly. sounds, sounds, sounds like this is the perfect uh, patient that would benefit from a Reboa. I know not all of our uh, <laughs> listeners may agree from that, but no, nothing like quick intravascular proximal control to get you out of jail. Yeah, I don't know anything about Reboa. Maybe Rishi can comment. No, no, no. no. Uh, is that a word or is that English? I'm not sure. It's Eastern European. Uh, yeah. Don't worry. Well, I, I have used it for upper GI bleeders rarely. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that does, it, it buys you enough time to get to the OR occasionally on those real like, okay, no other option, you know, kind of thing to I, get to the operating. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. This, this discussion is um, bringing back to mind the case that I did with uh, Jose Diaz uh, last year. And I'll skip the, the complicated part and just say that it ended with uh, GI plucking a coil out with their endoscope uh, and giving it back to me, um, which was great. That was wonderful. Uh, so Dr. Billman, you've written about, very recently actually, about venous thromboembolic consequences mm -hmm. of pancreatitis and that they've, they have very bad prognostic significance for the first year uh, as far as mortality and, and recurrence and readmission. And I noticed that 1% of all of the patients you, you admitted for pancreatitis had splanctic vein thrombosis. Um, so tell me a little bit, how do you manage that? How do you avoid that? When do your ears prick up about that as a possibility? Again, the, uh, that is uh, in the setting of more severe um, pancreatic necrosis. And thank you for uh, mentioning our paper that we published about a year ago. We looked at about 4,600 patients over seven years that we took care of with uh, pancreatitis. About 7% of that group developed some form of DVT. 1% uh, had mesenteric venous thrombosis, as you noted. Uh, not surprisingly, with Verkal's triad, it's uh, venous uh, irritation, hypercoagulable state um, in that setting. Uh, and inflammation in that setting. So those people who have the more severe damage to the pancreas are more likely to develop mesenteric venous thrombosis. Um, the most important thing we do as intensivists is to make sure we think about it and don't let our GI doctors, interventional radiologists, surgeons stop the anticoagulation too soon or not start it soon enough after interventions. And I've had GI doctors saying, I'm going to scope somebody. You need to stop the Lovenox for two days before endoscopy. Or I've done an ERCP with a stent. You need to keep them off of Lovenox and aspirin forever. Um, you know, you have to say no. Um, in unpublished work that we did related to this, 
we showed a strong relationship to interruption of appropriate DVT prophylaxis and the development of DVT and mesenteric thrombosis. So um, the data was not good enough to publish, but that's, again, one of Bielman's observations. Um, if you identify mesenteric venous thrombosis, the data out there is that it doesn't make any difference if you fully anticoagulate them. I will tell you, if I don't have have contraindications to full anticoagulation, I fully anticoagulate them without good evidence to back me up. If it's a year down the road and we find it, I don't. But the long-term complications of portal venous thrombosis are so ugly. Um, if I can, in a young person, block that and, and keep that mesenteric venous thrombosis from progressing to full portal vein thrombosis, I, I do anticoagulate it. Thank you for bringing up something that we don't do as well as we should be doing. Well, I, I found that particularly interesting. Um, and something, again, when I was a surgical resident, we didn't think about it. It was regarded more of a zebra that in the years since then has become a standard concern, particularly with aggressive fluid resuscitation, is abdominal compartment syndrome. How frequently do you monitor this? What do you do for it? Is there, do you have strategies to avoid it if you think that your resuscitation is becoming a little too brisk? Um, I think the first thing you need to do is to look for it. And so some form of monitoring for abdominal compartment syndrome is important. Uh, I think there are two circumstances where I see this. Uh, the one circumstance is the patient who's had a delayed uh, resuscitation. So they've sat in the uh, outside hospital with unrecognized severe acute pancreatitis, and their resuscitation starts two days into the process. And those people are going to require more resuscitation. Some work by um, some people from uh, Ohio State University have strongly associated the amount of resuscitation with the delay in initiation of resuscitation. Um, so that's good information you can find out there in the literature. So the first thing I'm doing when I get the call from the outside hospital is don't worry about compartment syndrome, pour in the fluids. The other thing that I get really nervous about, I've poured in the fluids, they're not making urine, uh, they're needing vasopressors, uh, they're turning into the Michelin man, is they got dead bowel. And if you look at the literature uh, about what's gone on with some of these people who have developed abdominal compartment syndrome, is they've got mesenteric arterial thrombosis or major mesenteric venous thrombosis and dead bowel um, because of the dreaded complication of, of uh, SMA thrombosis from severe uh, pancreatitis with inflammation. I've seen that very infrequently in my, um, in my experience, but it happens um, if you look at the literature, and this was a paper I found um, looking at abdominal compartment syndrome in um, severe acute pancreatitis for the people they unzipped because of abdominal compartment syndrome, uh, six out of the 10 patients that they opened up had dead bowel and mesenteric ischemia. So um, it's, it's an ugly complication and you should have that little bell going off in the back of your mind if you're starting to think about unzipping somebody with a chronic, with a severe acute pancreatitis. So do you ever, in those settings, um, do you ever consider the role of uh, percutaneous drain placement to try and relieve abdominal compartment syndrome, or should we be unzipping folks right off the bat? I, I feel like turning that question around on you. I will give you my answer, um, but it's without any good data. First, my feeling about a percutaneous catheter in the peritoneum in this setting is it's a needle with a clot on both ends, okay? Um, uh, I don't think it will do 
diddly squat for you in, in either treating or sorting out what's going on with this patient. So I think you need to get brave and open them up. Okay, and you're gonna do one of two things. You're gonna find a patient with dead bowel, and then you have to be brave and go talk to the family about the fact that their loved one is, is dead. Um, the other is they've got abdominal compartment syndrome, and you're gonna treat them through that abdominal compartment syndrome. I would be very interested in you guys' thoughts or experience. I haven't personally used the catheter as much. And fortunately, we just don't see abdominal compartment syndrome like we used to with changes in resuscitation and those kind of things. That's a whole nother podcast. Um, let me return fire. You you fired at Milos to return. If we got it here, I'm going to turn it back on you there, good Colonel. What? So I've been brave. I have gone in abdominal compartment syndrome. I have embraced opening the abdomen. I now see swollen bowel and I've got a patient open with a nasty looking pancreas. So what's what do, do I if, if you want me to be brave, do I be am I a little bit brave or am I John Wayne get on my horse and let's ride and go after that pancreas kind of brave? Mm. That's the stupid so, chart. Is that is that is that kind of the cluster heading into the charge too brave? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. I I, I treat and, you know, we get a, a number of patients referred in from outside um, with abdominal compartment syndrome, you know, two or three days into their course, we open them, we treat them with an open abdomen, we don't dive into the retroperitoneum and try to debreed the pancreas in that short-term uh, period of time. If they're open and the pancreas starts to ooze out, then I think we might be scooping some of the pancreas out going back to the 90s again. Um, but, you know, abdominal compartment syndrome is a real thing. Uh, it's a real problem. The treatment in my mind is an open abdomen until you can get the swelling to go down. Yeah. Well, let me, you've given us a lot of pearls for acute pancreatitis. And I think that's the one that keeps us, the dreaded complication we keep up at night. So now I, I know I met, first met you in 2009 in a tent in Iraq when you were the theater trauma director. And I was just a fresh out of trauma training, trying to figure out how to manage eight surgeons as a trauma director in a major combat zone. And your, uh, your mentorship then was very uh, useful. But one of the things you talked about was, you know, I'm, you're, as a reservist, you're like, my partner's going to be very happy when I get back because I have this pancreatitis practice that nobody wants to manage. And it is a challenge. And in particular, some of your chronic pancreatitis patients, right? We, and you had, I remember having great discussions about what, what do you do for those folks? So I, that's a whole different podcast. But can you give us an idea of what... Um, you know, what are the challenges that that, what is chronic pancreatitis, and, uh, you know, in, in its, in the definition form? Uh, and then what are the challenges patients present? And I, and I got to close with, we talk about the Pusto procedure every time we have some kind of, you know, resident teaching thing. Is that something that is alive and well in 2022 in any context? So chronic pancreatitis is a disease of the pancreas caused from recurrent injury to the pancreas. The thing that we all think about is alcohol. Um, and if you look around the world, that's probably 50% of uh, chronic pancreatitis. Chronic pancreatitis is debilitating in three ways. The number one cause is horrible pain that these patients suffer all the time. Um, but the other two ways are pancreatic excrement insufficiency and uh, diabetes mellitus, which developed, which develops as you destroy the pancreas. The most important treatments are um, removing the source of the uh, injury to the pancreas if you can. So uh, medications like alcohol, self-induced medication, you need to review, re, uh, remove that. Smoking, surprisingly, is in certain situations a cause of chronic pancreatitis as well. And some of my more difficult patients are the lifetime smokers that I have to convince to stop smoking. There are lots of good endoscopic and medical therapies that work for uh, a chunk of that, that patient population, leaving you with a patient population then that does not respond to medical therapies and is suffering from uh, chronic pain uh, daily with a narcotic addiction that goes along with that chronic pain. The risk of death over 10 years for that population is 30%. So 
So as bad as some of the milder forms of cancer, um, which brings you to surgical interventions. Uh, in my mind, it, it, the interventions break down based on whether or not you have uh, minimal change pancreatitis, which is some of the familial pancreatitis. That's about a third of my highly selected referral practice. Uh, those patients who are um, pancreatitis that is classic with chain of lakes and calcifications and a big dilated duct, those are the people that are amenable to the drainage procedures like you're talking about, Joe, uh, with a pusto, or more commonly now, I'm doing something called a fry procedure, which is also working at draining the head of the pancreas as well. There is a smaller group of patients who are after or have gone through the recovery of the things we've been talking about in the last 30 minutes. You know, they've had necrosis of the neck of the pancreas, and now they have a disconnected pancreatic duct. And those people are amenable to a distal pancreatectomy with or without a splenectomy. What I've, uh, you know, talking about serendipity, what I've gotten famous for in the surgical literature is this crazy thing of a total pancreatectomy and islet autotransplant. Um, this was a, a crazy idea of one of my senior partners in 1977. He did this as a um, an experiment in nature because he couldn't figure out why his dog studies, uh, the dog's islets were dying. And so he did this in people because he said, pancreatitis, I can do the islet isolation, give it back to him and see why the islets are dying in the patients. Was it because of immunosuppression, which is what it turned out to be? Was it because I was putting him in the liver or was it some other reason? And it turned out that this first patient he operated in 1977 lived 20 years with functioning islets after he did this to help sort out what was going on in the laboratory. Now we do it in people with small duct pancreatitis or familial pancreatitis that involves the entire gland. And we cure the pain in these patients about 90% of the time. We reduce diabetes risk significantly with only about 50% of people needing long-term insulin therapy after this total pancreatectomy and islet autotransplant. So thank you for letting me talk about something other than acute care surgery in our discussion. It's a, it's a, it's an important topic. And I, I think it's a challenging, I, you know, I think as we get around in our careers, we want to, I know Rishi and I, part of the reason we embrace vascular and trauma, and we're trying to commit me, convince Milos to do the same is because it's, it's an entity that not everybody wants to deal with. It's a, it's a problem, right? And no, I cannot think of a problem that's more challenging than chronic, you know, chronic pancreatitis that gets to that surgical stage. And you embracing that and becoming a real leader in that. It's been kind of, it's a cool story. And the, some of the stuff you've come up with has been pretty novel. Well, we like to close, good Colonel Beelman, with our random questions. We put away our clinical hats for a bit and we get to know our surgical leaders that we're talking about, our thought leaders, our surgical leaders. And I, I remember, good Colonel Beelman, some of the advice that you gave me in that tent in Afghanistan, in two, or Iraq, excuse me. So many deployments between the two of us. I forget where we've seen each other. Five. Uh, <laughs> yeah, seven on my end. Um, <laughs> and I remember you told me, you know, Joe, the key thing is treat everybody with respect. Don't don't call somebody a curse word, uh, in particular those that begin with A. But I'm going to call you what some surgeons would call a curse word. Uh, it begins with A, and that's administrator, right? So you you have uh, as part of your career, which has had multiple chapters, fascinating storied career. Part of that has been the, as the Associate Dean for Clinical Administration at Minnesota. And I guess my question for you is there are going to be people who want to pursue that. You've lived on both sides of the fence. What's the attraction of being in that, in that clinical administration realm? And do we prepare people for that in, in terms of skill sets and things that they need to learn if they want that avenue? That's, that's uh, several questions in one. And I'm going to answer the last one first and then go on to the more fun questions. We do not prepare physicians to be administrators. We we train physicians to be scientists and um, and physicians. And uh, we get really good at taking care of one patient at a time. Um, 
what fascinated me about administration and you know when i met you in the sands in iraq at in balad uh, i was doing this i'm making a difference for all those kids that are injured after somebody's legs gotten blown off or they've stepped on an ied and it it's incredibly gratifying to know that you're not just making a difference for one person that's under your knife but the thousands of people joe that you and i took care of uh, over that painful 20 years of experience and so being an administrator is important because instead of retail care you're providing wholesale care and you are arguably making a difference for more patients than you would make uh, as a doctor taking care of one patient at a time so that was one of the appeals for me as a physician the other appeal to me was i saw other people who i didn't necessarily believe had the appropriate perspective for for focusing on how to improve patient care in doing that um, and i thought it was important for the physician perspective to be heard at the administrative level where they're making decisions about how to spend our um, money in healthcare. And so I thought it was important for me to be in the room with our nurses, our people who have done masters in public health, our people who are business administrators, uh, to also hear the physician's perspective on delivering great care. Um, and uh, I think it's important as you start your career as a doctor, first to get really good at being a doctor, because there is nobody that can take that away from you. Uh, when you're in a room talking about what it's like to be a doctor, taking care of patients, the nurse can't, can't push back on that. The masters in public health person can't push back on that. The MBA can't push back on that. You have a unique perspective that needs to be heard and needs to be in the room. It's also important to listen to the other's unique perspective. Healthcare is like the biggest business in the United States now, if you look at GDP, okay? Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of money. And the MBAs have a lot of perspectives on that that I don't have. So I needed to listen to them and learn from them as well. Yeah. Great question, Joe. Well, thank you, sir. Well, yeah. Veterans Day was this past week. We've talked, to, I, I can't, oh, every time I talk to you, we tell old stories. That's what military retirees do. So thank you for your service first <laughs> this past week. And then uh, what, what do you miss most about your time in the military? Because you, you, you did a lot of different things in the service as a surgeon. Uh, you went from a, just being in charge of the patient in front of you all the way up to running an entire joint trauma theater system. What do you miss most? Um, I, I love the focus of the mission of especially trauma care. And... Uh, Everybody, Joe, you know, when I traveled around in 2008, 2009 as a joint trauma system director, everybody cared. Everybody knew why they were there. And it was pretty, and you know, everybody would on occasion get bored by the fact that they were sitting in, in a sandy place in a tent and not doing much. But, you know, you bring the patient to those people and all of a sudden, Everybody knew why they were there and what they were there to do. And I I love that part of the mission. And as a leader, what I've tried to help express to my docs and nurses and others here at the University of Minnesota is that's our mission. You know, we're here every day and I know you're coming to work to make a living and you want to go home and see your families. But when you're here, what we're really trying to do is take care of these patients and deliver the best care we can provide to those patients. And so that's one of the things I miss. I don't miss because I've made lifetime friends and brothers and sisters in the 20 years that I served. And I, I value that almost more than anything else, you know, calling you up after I hadn't talked to you in three years and we know each other in a lot of ways better than many other people will ever know other people. Sure. Um, and so thank you for your service and thank you for the work that we've done for the, the years together too, Joe. And I'm sorry about getting sappy 
in the middle of uh, uh, in, in the middle of this, but it's really gratifying and rewarding work. And I I don't know how to express it in the right way. You can get sappy. It's Billman's choice. Um, <laughs> uh, let me our final question before we let you go. When I think of Minnesota, I think of Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon and ice fishing on a lake drinking Schlitz liquor and uh, Schlitz malt liquor and listening to the twins game with their favorite fishing pole, ice fishing. Pole. Joe, you can't leave out uh, Lake Wobegon. Yes, Lake Wobegon. Another, right? So all these, these <laughs> great, the iconic Minnesota images in my mind as a kid who grew up in South Texas and moved all over with the military. But what do you, what do you do in your spare time on these cold, dark days of the Minnesota winter? Are you in the, this, the fish shack on the weekends or? Um, I go up once every couple of years to remind myself of why I hate ice fishing. Um, uh, other than that, I do all sorts of things outside in the winter, just like anybody else does that's close to snow. Um, there's lots of outdoor activities in the winter and you have to embrace them. It's allowed me to buy clothing that I never thought I would need. Um, and, uh, uh, so I like to cross-country ski. I like to walk. I um, We are between dogs, but dogs love getting outside, and they don't care what it's like outside. They want to be outside. My wife and I both love outdoor activities. Um, so that's, and I love summer in Minnesota. It's glorious. It's 80 degrees. You can fish, the best fishing in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. No, no one's going to turn down the Minnesota in the summer. That's for sure. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, with that, I'm going to step back and I'm going to let me know this close. Colonel Beelman, thanks again so much. I'm going to call you Colonel for the rest of your life. You know that. So <laughs> um, thanks so much personally for joining us. And I will let me drive us out. Thank you, Colonel DeBose. <laughs> uh, obviously, a huge thank you, uh, Colonel Dr. Beelman. Um, it, it, it's great when we get an opportunity to pair somebody with such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to both what's out there in the literature and all your experience, you know, to, to, to get that piece of advice saying, well, the literature says this, but let, let, let me tell you in the real world how that's applicable. And uh, I, I tried to come up with a good quote to summarize pancreatitis, the management of pancreatitis. And I know the boss loves him a good quote. Uh, and so what I, uh, what I came to for, for this particular topic was it's, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war when you're dealing with pancreatitis. Um, well played. I love huge, that. A huge thank you, obviously, to uh, Dr. DuBose and, and Dr. Kundi. Um, Dr. Bielman, and to all our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Tiger Country, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye. Thank you. You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bahavitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon. <laughs>